let's talk about it. Welcome back to Thick Radio, the podcast where we talk about gaining, feedism, and everything in their orbit. I'm James. And I'm Tim, so let's get into it. Today we're continuing our series of dinner table talks. We have a few guests with us, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves one by one. Cool. Hi, my name is Ashley Perry. I'm a Gurnpool man from Kondamooka country. Uh, it's off the southeast coast of Queensland, the island's just off the coast. Um, but I'm down here in Melbourne on Bunurong country. Um, hi, everyone. So my name is Berto. I'm known as Siuna. I'm a tribal member of Pueblo Laguna in the village called Mesita. And I'm located in United States of America in the state of Maryland. And it's good to be back, y'all. And I'm Michael. I'm um, from Providence, Rhode Island. I am um, Swedish. Viking and um, Native American. And it's nice to finally meet you guys. Listen, thank you everyone so much for being here. Ash and Berto, you've of course been on the pub before. Michael, it's your first time. I'm really excited for this. It's an opportunity I think that we haven't necessarily had in the Gaina community before to bring in multiple indigenous parties and multiple parties from different parts of the world. so I'm kind of excited to see where this conversation goes. Um, we talked a little bit about this before the recording. Obviously, Tim and I want to make an effort to take a step back in this conversation and, of course, like always, allow you guys to come to the fore, bring that conversation, that narrative, but, of course, ask each other questions, right? So really, that's where we want to get through it today. So listen, are you all ready to get into this? Yeah. Fabulous. Absolutely. Okay. Well, listen, I know you all have introduced a little bit about, you know, your country, your mob, your tribe, your people. Um, Just give us a little bit of a snippet from each of you. Like, what do we need to know about the people you come from? Yeah, I guess I'll go first. Um, So I can speak sort of um, about the history, like a little bit about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples from Australia. Um, I say peoples because I guess before colonization, you know, as a, such a large continent, um, there are many, many uh, different groups of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people with different languages, uh, different cultural practices, um, different meanings. And I think, sen- well, since colonization, there's been, I guess, the um, Australian kind of identification of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that group all of the uh, traditional owners into that same sort of identity. Um, and now that identity um, has come, I guess, like a degree of like solidarity and kind of group movement to sort of fight for Indigenous rights in our country together. Um, so I guess I sort of always think about how there's kind of almost like multiple levels of indigeneity for me, like my actual own mob um, language and culture and history. Uh, the broader culture within Australia of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and then I guess internationally, like Indigenous people, sort of broadly, and like where our stories kind of have parallels or um, similarities between the different um, Indigenous people from around the world. So for me, um, coming from the USA, um, I mentioned my language is called Carisan, so that's been with us for centuries. A pretty long time and the tribe where I'm coming from um, it's located at New Mexico and um, for me um, 
as of now, like we currently have 574 recognized tribes while thousands are either instinct or unrecognized. So as of now, the only the only difficulty we had really is about the sovereignty rights in USA and that is still ongoing. And not to mention how there's a lack of um, empathy towards indigenous people in America, especially in American education systems where as many of us know that that we heard about this story of how <clears throat> Christopher Columbus showed up to to the land to the new world basically and they thinking us as natives um were from India and that's what that's what we get the term Indian from but that's not really the case where because of a Columbus it really pretty much um colonized so many tribes to the point where we don't know what's real or what's not real no more in the USA and it gets very complicated to the point where for me like I would have to you know educate people out of survival rather than just be passionate about it because it's a huge dilemma of me wanting to you know decolonize the education about my people um, but also if I if I try to educate people and for those who are very ignorant about it, it's kind of like a spit on your face kind of deal, if that makes sense. So that's pretty much my dilemma of where we're at and from where I'm coming from. But overall, like what I will say though is how we've been really resilient um lately, especially there are a lot of protests when it comes to um land back, for example, and also free uh, Palestine, because when we looking into the history between our genocide and their current genocide, we just related into the higher levels of ground to the point where we legit understood what is going on right now between between our country and Palestine over there. So that's pretty much the tip of the iceberg from my end. Um, for me, I'm being in a, a highly Swedish family and household. Um, it has been more on the indigenous of that part. Um, I also have the Native American part of me, but it was um, more on, like I said, my Swedish heritage was more of my indigenous part of it. And as you can tell, I don't look or sound like I'm Swedish, but my my family, my grandmother was born in Sweden, raised in Sweden, and then came over to the US. So um, I'm only second born um, U.S. generation, so it was. It's it's a very difficult um, understanding for certain people because of me being a mixed racial, multiracial um, person. So it 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 does come into play where you kind of have to get into what you are and who you are. And um, as of a person with my family background, we just make sure that we show that there is love and show that there's actual everything comes into play for each other and we got to just show each other how how we love each other and that's it i think that's a wonderful snapshot to get a, a get a bit of a bit of a taste of what happens you know with uh with what that kind of culture that each of you represent is experiencing and also how you you kind of sit with that identity, you know? I mean, I, I love like Ash and Berto, you guys feel very like in it with what's happening indigeneitally, locally. And then Michael, as you expressed, there's this blending of heritage, you know, where some things are expressed on one side, maybe not so much of the other, and yet it's still something you hold as a balance. I know that um, 
Ash, I think we spoke about this with one of your episodes in Australia. They used to have, and I'm so sorry, I'm spacing on the name of it, but it used to be that question of, you know, percentage, like how much of something are you? Can you be percentage enough to claim identity? And then there's law that comes into this idea of mix and everything else. And so much of that comes out as as so, so messy and, and just wrong, wrong on, on, on so many levels. And I think it's just wonderful to have so many different people here to talk about, yes, this indigeneity and how it's different, how it links together. And also we're going to bring it around to gaming and talk about these communal experiences and maybe the ways in which those contrast and blend together. So for each of you, I, I'd like to hear how has that experience been like for you through that indigenous lens, through that, you know, typical cultural lens of food, fat and weight gain? How was that experience like for you through life up until your gainer encourages identities now? So I think with, for me, when it comes to the aspect, I, I come from a very, um, on, on my grandmother's side, I have to go back onto that side is, um, I used to be extremely thin and my family was extremely big. <laughs> I was tall, but 145 pounds um, when I first started into seeing the gaming industry and what it is and how it is and how um, us as a community can be because my my uncles, my aunts, um, they were just tall, but my uncles were very big. And it just made me feel like I needed to be somewhere in that realm because I felt like I was outside of that realm. And I was made fun of for many years because of it. So that's how I look at it is like it's turned me into where I am now at, you know, six foot one and uh, 325 pounds. I feel happier now that I'm in that skin than what I was, but it, it took me up to now to really feel like I'm, I'm actually somewhere. So for me, like mine's kind of the opposite from Michael, um, in terms of, um, my family size. Um, so my family size, both, um, mom and dad, we're not very big people. We're just tall. That's it. We're just tall. However, though, we just, or I can basically say how we do feast quite often, but not like overly done. And that makes sense. Um, the only thing I will say, though, is how um, from my journey as an encouragement journey, it's been a huge dilemma for me when I don't even know that the gay community existed back then. Right. But um, as I'm like, you know, you know, understanding my identity um, of our community, um, there are times when um, I keep asking myself, and I did mention this on the previous episode where I'm in a dilemma when, yes, I, I love encouraging people, but also I feel like I'm doing the opposite of what, what our people wants to do of, you know, decreasing the heart diseases, decreasing the diabetes type two, et cetera. And I feel like it's a, it's a double-edged sword for me where I'm supposed to do what my people want to do, but I'm also doing the opposite to fulfill my not fantasies but more like fulfilling my pleasures that makes sense but it's just the dilemma where i'm in right now how although though what i will say though is um the other tribes what i've been seeing though i know they do eat quite a lot and I, and there are times when they do um 
when they make regalias, they have to make extra size bigger because the amount of food that has been eaten when it comes to um, the fried bread, the Navajo bread, I I'm sorry, the, the Navajo tacos um, throughout the powers, et cetera, though. But I think it just really depends on whose tribe we're talking about from my end. But I know my tribe in particular, we don't we don't really eat a lot. We just eat the, the amount of portions what it was given to us uh, from past generations. Yeah, I think for my mob, it's pretty similar. So my family is actually a fisher people family sort of from our community. And so we've always been fishermen for like gener generations and generations and generations. Um, and a lot of that sort of came from a place of like each family group within the tribe would have, I guess, sort of their role within that. And so like ours were like the fishermen who would kind of go down, catch all the mullet that sort of swim up past the islands um, and sort of work with uh, the dolphins to sort of haul, like herd fish in as well as catching dugons, which like manatees, which like over there. Um, but I think um, for, I guess like for a really, really long time, like despite having huge feasts um, and celebrations and stuff like that in community, like there's always been like, that space of kind of like where traditional knowledge sort of like you know provides warnings around greed and overconsumption and only like what can country sustain like in terms of like how much can you take in terms of fish or different um animal life that's happening um on country like in like in the land that you live in um and how to sort of monitor that and you know when are the right seasons to collect and um have those like celebrations where like you bring more kind of food in to do that sort of work or when you travel to another person's country to do those celebrations as well so I think it's kind of it's interesting where that sort of fits relative to I guess kind of my own personal experience of being a gainer being having you know like um interesting kind of growing bigger and where that sort of aligns with I guess modern life as well and like you know what's available outside of um you know traditional fishing practices um and I guess there's something like it's interesting to sort of raise the issue of um healthcare for Indigenous people because I kind of think that's a pattern around the world is like these discrepancies between um the settler populations in terms of health outcomes and life expectancy to Indigenous outcomes and I think like, it's interesting because I sort of think about, and I could be wrong about this, like Tim's the medical person in the room, <laughs> but like about how those things are multifactorial. And I kind of think diet's one element, but I actually think access to healthcare for my community is a real issue. And I think in terms of like timely or like kind of early detection of like issues like um, heart disease and stuff like that, um, an early intervention I think that's something that's really really missed back home in my community and so I kind of think you know there's like a lot of similar to like what happens in the gaming community a lot of like well if you just ate better you'd all be fine but there's not never sort of addressing like we live like an hour off of the mainland um, there's a tiny indigenous healthcare center that isn't always running has a limited capacity like those are the sort of things that impact health as well and not just the fact that we don't need better. So I kind of like I sort of I kind of try to push back on it a little bit because I do think there's a lot of like, especially in Australia, like pointing at Indigenous people and always saying it's your fault that these things are happening to you and sort of trying to find ways to kind of accept that but also push back on it. I guess and yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of it that I think is great is that you guys um you're 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 in a fishing community which um growing up in Sweden 
my my family in the summertime when I go over to Sweden, that's that's where we mostly are. And Gothenburg is um very highly um fishing and um crabbing and lobster and doing all these different things when it comes to that and incorporating that into your into your own diet. I learned all the same things like you were talking about, learning about healthcare, being healthy, still eating in a in a different portion and growing up as having more bigger meals, but portionalizing differently. And um for someone like myself, um diabetes runs heavily in my family. So learning all of those things, we had to have that understanding. Um, my great, great grandmother um, passed away from what they called back in the day was the sugar disease. And that was because they didn't know about diabetes until you know, the seventies. Um, and they didn't really understand it until like, even until the nineties. And when my grandmother got diabetes, um, it was just the change. It was the change of what, what it was. And we've evolved so much now, even to this day. So it, it is, it is a lot about healthcare and diet and knowing about, um, health. In our episode talking about diet and race, this was a really interesting point on the consumption of dairy and how, statistically speaking, 70 plus percent of African-American people, 95 plus percent of Asian-American people, 70 plus percent of Indigenous and Latine people have lactose intolerance, whereas only roughly 30 percent of white people have lactose intolerance. And yet milk specifically and dairy is touted as oftentimes one of the most crucial and core parts of the human diet, even though the most logical and obvious statement is it's never dairy products that are made of human milk. It's always animal milk. And that probably isn't something we should be consuming. Um, so it's a fabulous episode. If you haven't listened, go and check it out. But one of the big points that it brings up is how the narrative around challenging what is dominant is often regarded as, oh, well, if it affects you, you non-white person, it is not the concern of the dominant to give a fuck. Um, but we absolutely should. And while maybe as individuals, we don't have so much control over the dairy industry or like the marketing money of the dairy industry, multi-billion dollar corporations and whatnot, we are all a part of this beautiful gaming community where we are constantly talking to each other about healthcare tips, about consumption of food tips, recipes, etc., etc. So this probably brings in a very important narrative about people who are indigenous and traditional recipes and ingredients and ways of procuring and treating food, ways that have clearly sustained human cultures for thousands of years. So maybe we need to learn a little bit more from that and need to be just a little bit more observant of what non-Caucasian people are saying around food and food culture, history, consumption, production, all of that. Pausing for a moment here, Ash, you sent something in the chat about a big cheese. That's a, just, I watch way too much YouTube, um, but it's a video on actually how the dairy industry was kind of maybe misrepresented in terms of its benefit around calcium and how that was actually more of a political move for um, supporting farmers who were yeah. going through <laughs> an economic crisis at the time. And so 
yeah it's quite it's a very interesting yeah. video it was yeah. it was completely because the dairy um industry was suffering you know um dairy farmers across the country were having problems because people were moving away from dairy products because they felt like crap when they were eating them so you know then they had to come out with all these psas about how oh no dairy's great for you you eat three servings a day it'll actually help you lose weight and it'll support healthy bones and teeth and yada yada you don't need the amount of calcium that you find in dairy products you can find almost twice as, as much in some vegetables yeah so it's it's just an interesting conversation when we consider you know someone who's new to gaining comes along and says hey everyone i'm interested in gaining a lot of weight what do i do everyone jumps in the thread and goes gain shakes milk drink milk cheese butter and cream and as as the self-confessed butter queen you know i ain't saying nothing on that my position on butter will remain as it is i ain't apologizing for it however yeah. butter um, butter is always sticks? preferable to margarine but butter is preferable. isn't it three sticks three three we're paula dean we're, we're paula dean now is it, is it at the paula dean i think when i have my cooking show i'm gonna have to have a bouffant that is even bigger even just more like just um you know that episode of the simpsons where he puts like makeup in the double barrel gun and he shoots marge in the face that's gonna have to be me like southern bell makeup just insanely <laughs> deep frying sticks of butter and making things happen but my butter future is beside the point <laughs> i'm gonna have to show you how to make deep fried butter i was joking about that why is deep fried butter do they do they actually make mm -hmm. yeah that's a real thing it's a real thing you take like i've heard of I've yeah, you... heard of the deep fried Oreos and oh, those are deep fried Twinkies. Like I've had them, mm. but I've never. Oh mm. yeah, it's it's simple. You just take a, a cube of frozen butter and you wrap it in um, phyllo dough, and then you um, fry it very quickly. Well, Ash, when I'm back in Australia, bitch, we gonna have to make this happen. <laughs> I want to take a moment that was a bit sus that James's video just cut out for a little bit when we we're talking about that. I was like, what? Just me silently like jerking off to butter behind the camera, like patting my little stick of butter, like, shh, baby, they're not talking about you. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, and I, I still have to look up that recipe for butter cake from Wawa because you went nuts over that. <laughs> yeah, when I was in America, he fed me something called butter cake and I was like, what do you mean? And then he put it in my mouth and I came on the spot. And it was incredible. Like, my God, butter cake. Thank you, America. Butter cake um, is like the southern part of the state because I, I had not heard about that until I moved to Florida. Now, something that I have heard of from one of y'all before that sounds delightful and I have not yet had is a Navajo taco. Berto, you told us about this on your original Indigenous episode. Would you mind explaining for us again and for the listeners, what is a Navajo taco? A Navajo taco. Well, for the back of letter term, uh, for those that doesn't, under, doesn't really quite get it, think of it as a giant tostada, basically, except um, they, that originally it comes from the Navajos where they actually make their own dough. They actually pat it back and forth, like, like almost like a, almost like a flat pancake. And at first they would put all the dough into the deep frying pan oil and just let it cook for a moment. And as they're making it, they're, they were putting it on with ground beef, with beans, and then they shredded the tomatoes, shredded the lettuce, shredded the cheese, add a little bit of sauce on top of it. And then once the fry, fry bread is done, you put that as a base, you slap the ground beef with beans, lettuce, tomato, diced onions, basically whatever, whatever you want to put on it, and cheese, and then put a little bit of sauce, and there's your giant 
Napa Hotako, and they're my favorite. And most of the time, you will find it at the local powwows here at the at the USA. Um, doesn't matter where you're at, you will find a Napa Hotako and any any powwow. Unless you know someone who's native who knows how to make um, Navajo tacos or or native tacos, whichever you want to call them, I have yet to um, to perfect it on my end. So, girl, I'm an, I'm gonna need ten right now. Like, I don't care if I'm not invited to the powwow. You bring it out to like the forest edge where I can meet the bitches, and I will sit there gladly and eat in the Navajo taco because I want to eat that shit. That sounds delicious. To tell you the truth, even just even just that one taco, you'll just get full really quickly. You don't even need a second one. It, how big it just fills you right up. I'm thinking like you know like like a taco size taco. How big is a Navajo taco? Oh, she big. Okay. Yeah, she's yeah, she's big. Man. We're not Maybe. talking about a small one. We're not talking about teeny tiny. No, we're talking about big. Talk so like the size of a pancake, pretty much, or even bigger than a pancake. Dang. I'm already drooling right now. So <laughs> let let's just let's just have like a powwow, just so that way we can just have all of that. Just just have it to ourselves, basically. Yes, so. just us, just us. I'll yes. be happy with that. Yes, ma'am, and I will I will do what I can to get one of them. God damn it, I mean. Ash, bringing bringing in here, like as as part of you know like a fishing community, is there like, and I, I'm pretty sure we would have asked you about this last time, but is there like a traditional like meal from your mob made with like local fish and produce, or is it more just like shit gets fried or cooked and we just like pass it around and have a nibble? Yeah, <clears throat> pretty much it's like mostly just sort of fried fish. Um, so the two main things, like the delicate, the delicacy is uh, dugong, which is like a really, um, like it's a sea mammal, very fatty, like, and that's like the kind of delicacy that's eaten. Um, but then in terms of like the majority of the fish, it's mullet, uh, mullet, and it's like kind of, I guess, traditionally cooked just in the fire, like sort of kind of wrapped up and prepared and then sort of cooked in the fire. Um, nowadays, it's like mostly just fried. Um, so kind of like fried on a grill top um and it's really delicious and it's and, you know it's really nice because kind of like even though that style of cooking has kind of changed over time it's something that you know every time there's like a big event on the island like my family will cook up for everyone so it'll be like you know like literally um what are they called um like cold boxes like full of fish like that look prepared and then you know whoever's like there like about three people on the grills cooking them for like the whole township and um, it's really nice, like, to just have everyone kind of come together around food and, you know, do that. Um, I guess the other thing that's sort of, like, from the mission times, it's also, like, really, really popular back home, is just, like, kind of various stews made out of, like, um, different things. So, like, kind of different shellfish and stuff that, like, mob would collect off of the beaches, um, cooked up into, like, a curry and, um, various other kind of dishes like that, um, and so, like, a lot of it's, like, kind of, like, large, like, either, you know, things that are sort of semi-individual, but, like, kind of actually just big sharing sort of dishes where everyone's kind of eating roughly the same thing. And, um, yeah. Very that. A, lo a lot of this hand motion going around, like, for the table, a lot of this just sort of goes around. Yeah, very, very that. Very, very, very that. Um, now, Michael, and we covered this in the Norway episode because for a second we thought that, like, the shark uh like fermented blubber thing but no that's like icelandic right like she, she's different um it's it's icelandic and finnish but, the finnish love that but swedish what what's like a, a specific you know from that family like what's like a specific meal or like a food that you think really represents the vibe 
So a lot of what my family does is uh, fermented herring. And at first you would think that it's actually really disgusting, but it's actually really good. And it, it smells horrible. It absolutely smells horrible. I was about to say, if it smells but anything like pickled herring, it smells horrible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's similar. It's basically similar. That, that's what it is. It's, it's pickled. Okay. Because I've had pickled herring, but I've had like Polish pickled herring. So I don't know if there's a slight difference in the process. <clears throat> there, there's two ways of preserving it. So the the Polish way of preserving it is is a little bit different than the um the Swedish way, and I think it's just the way that they actually um prepare the herring. Okay. And the the other one would be um the everybody knows it. It's um a a, a Swedish meatball. <laughs> oh yeah, like duh, like. <laughs> So yes. is it made is it made the same so like my mother is polish and i mean not like from she wasn't she's not an immigrant or anything like she's like fifth generation but um so like her thing was always oh i should make swedish meatballs because she thought it was a very polish thing to make and like uh so is it made the same way because she would use like sour cream heavy cream milk so it was like a, it was very it would come out like white essentially is that is it made the same way no um, ours are the, the traditional way of making a meatball is with, um, pork, um, ground beef or, um, duck, depending on what you have. And then it's like onions and, um, tomato sauce. And it, it there's just a lot of different pieces just to hold it together. And then they use a breadcrumb that they don't have here in the States, but they do have it over there where it's it's nice and it's crunchy kind of. And then what they do is when they cook, it gets beautifully gold, golden brown, and it's it's beautiful. The sauce is what makes it really. The gravy that they make, it that's what really makes it. Oh, damn it. I knew we shouldn't have talked about food on this damn thing. I mean, every time I get hungry and I'm like, bitch, this is not good. I had dinner. Now I now I need second dinner. God damn it. Um, now, listen, this is hardly indigenous, but like this is what my mother introduced me to back when I was a child. It was drippings, which if you've never had drippings, it would be where like throughout the week, uh, you know, they do meat. They roast it in the pan but they roast it in the same pan. And eventually that pan will fill with the grease. End of the week, you put that tray under the grill. It gets it all nice and hot and bubbly. And then you just get slabs of bread, slices of it, and just lay it in the grease and let it cook and let it fry. And then you have that. And that's and that's bread and drippings. And that's, listen, that, that's good eating. I'm just saying. Uh, so not not quite a, a heritage meal of like you know uh, bespoke lovely shellfish and and pickled things, but you know it. <laughs> I think I think we used to do something that was similar, except my mom would make a gravy out of it, out of the drippings, and then we we'd call that shit on a shingle because you put, he'd put it on toast. <laughs> oh my god, my father used to eat shit, that. Yeah, all you've the heard time. of it, shit on a shingle. You've heard it before. Yep. Yeah, I have. I have. That's kind of funny. God damn it. The, the closest thing that my dad would have made is like what he would call a sausage reel, which is not a sausage roll, 
uh, which is very quintessentially Australian. A sausage reel is where he would get like just sausages from Coles or Woolies, uh, and then you'd wrap it diagonal with a length of phyllo pastry. And then you'd, you know, do all that, do it in the oven, and it would get nice and puffy. And so basically you have like a fresh sausage in flaky puff pastry, and that's a sausage reel, he would call it. Um, but we're going to have to stick away from food now because I'm getting too hungry to function. So <laughs> thank you, everyone, for sharing. This was wonderful. Uh <laughs> this is a gainer podcast. How do we shy away from food? I know, but I'm getting fat now, and I can't have these constant conversations about food when I don't have it in front of me. It's, you know, like... I Sorry, go. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I've been on a different podcast and we actually did that one over food. And I'm just saying, if we're ever in the same country, in-person recordings may be the way to go. <laughs> Listen, we talk about this. We'd love to do like an actual like sit down chat show one day where it's like full visuals, like we're on camera. But like, instead of it being like at a studio with like a round table, it's like everyone's in like a lazy boy recliner with like a little side table for like snacks and drinks. And it's like some poor bitch producer having to like run around set switching microphones off because you can't hear the conversation because some fat bitch is just <laughs> just eating constantly, right? So speaking of Adam, they'll, Faye, they'll, they'll, the, some some flustered PA will run up to you like Tim keeps falling asleep, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like the, the the segment of the show where we got to jab Tim with the cattle prod. He needs to jab him like a cow. Well, I'll jump up and be like, hey, hey, what, 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 what's going on? What, what? <laughs> oh my. What we should do really is have like the the big table, and all of us are sitting around, not a round table, but just a long table, and all of us are sitting and we're just eating each other's other's dishes now that could be a really cute series right and you know yes we bring the indigeneity into that with some traditional meals but we could bring in people from all over the world to be like you know what let's talk about the fat boy meal from whence you came let's talk about like this fabulous dish that we're sleeping on that people can throw together and you know have glorious glorious calories in a delicious array of flavors mm. giving me ideas for the future bitch um to bring it back around, you know, with indigeneity and with gaining, I love that you've all also shared that there have been different narratives for y'all when it comes to what is it like to prepare and consume food, because there is this element of preservation and conservation. You know, it is a very Western ideal to consume and then make more and then consume more, but a very traditional ideal of saying you only take enough and we practice taking enough. And as you've expressed that, sometimes rages against, you know, the desire to gain versus this. Um, and I would like to ask each of you just to share, like, how you've personally kind of come to terms with that, how you balance it, how you challenge yourself, and where you are currently when it comes to navigating those choppy waters. Well, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a hit and miss situation for me, especially where I'm at. Um, as of now, I, I got my way of navigating myself in terms of like, you know, how to, how to exactly, you know, um, deal with racism, how to exactly deal with racial profiling and discrimination, um, not just um, in the public, but at the workplace, um, at the spaces and the galleries, um, the restaurants, coffee shops, et cetera. I feel like as of now, I, I found my right, right, um, I find my right right spot to how to navigate it, but but I feel like it's only temporary for me because there's always going to be new new conflicts coming out almost every day to the point where you have to start from square one again. Um, I'm speaking for myself um, from the area where I'm at right now, where I feel like there are times when um, 
when there's always when there's a problem, I was able to figure it out and solve it by doing some research about by how to communicate with that, et cetera. But then the next day a new problem arises because as I've been saying so many times about there's so much lack of education through all non-native people when when understanding about indigenous folks as well, because um the amount of media has been shown about us, uh, that's all they can rely on because this is all they know, rather than taking the time to research throughout the books, the novels, the arts, the music, etc. But there's like no um encouragement um in the non-native community where ourselves it 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 avalanches the conflicts and all all the stereotypes of us right in front of us and kind of spit our faces so that makes sense so honestly like i honestly for now i found my spot to navigate it but i know for the fact i'm gonna be back to square one because this is basically what most of our digital life is basically about is surviving um how people portray us versus who we are as people as well and i can go on with this but but what I've been speaking on is literally the tip of the iceberg as of now. So it's so much deeper into it, if that makes sense. I might just chime in. It's sort of not addressing it, maybe your question, but sort of following on from that, because that's something that's really familiar where, like in Australia, and I think like I work at a university and I've worked in museums um, and we talk like a lot, I guess, in those contexts about this like unlearning and sort of like the process of unlearning, I guess, like, the histories that have been taught or like the um <clears throat> ideas of what aboriginal people are in australia and how that maybe isn't correct or sort of coming from a place of racism or colonialism and how that sort of informed the way people think and talk about aboriginal people and trying to undo that but it's also really hard when like that damage is kind of done and it's so like people can start to learn and you know start to understand the histories and start to understand all these other aspects but I think there's just like something inherent that sort of gets embedded in someone when they've sort of spent their whole life thinking that you know for a long time Aboriginal people were wiped out in certain parts of Australia but they weren't um and um you know ideas around I guess like what our culture is, what our expectations are like for Indigenous futures and all these different things. And they've kind of already had their own sort of ideas of that. And I think it's really hard in the space that I work sometimes is like I'm working with like some actually really respectful, understanding, well-meaning white people um, or other settlers in Australia. Um, but they just kind of sometimes just don't get it. Like, you know, and I think it you know shows through in some of like the decision making that they make or the way they sort of approach things you can try to educate but actually it's hard to I think always be on that front of trying to educate or trying to catch people up to where things are at when there's actually so much built-in kind of understanding belief that they already have that you're trying to work against and like it's just you know it is really really frustrating it's kind of why you know there's still these like ongoing issues of like even though there's like a lot of allies and people who are supporting indigenous people that is still from this kind of awkward place of paternalism where they want to help but it still doesn't have an indigenous voice in there around what we actually want or what we actually need and it's kind of more still just coming from a lot of white people deciding what we want or need um and then you know then there's like the grunts on the ground level who are indigenous like me who are like 
yeah, but is that what they really, you know, is that what that community really wants? Or is that just what you've decided that they want, you know? And, like, there's a lot of, like, kind of, it's, yeah, really hard, I think, dealing with that every day. So I can appreciate what you're going through there. Yeah, in response to what you're saying, though, um, the thing is, the thing is, um, from my end, though, is normally um, us Indigenous folks, we will automatically assume is white people. Unfortunately for me, that's not the case. Um, it's been ongoing uh, throughout the people of color, has a lack of understanding of my people. And I would have expected them to, you know, to understand about us, at least the baseline about us. But the fact is how um, some that I know of, you know, um, there are elders, but also like, that has a lack of education of our and, and I kind of expected them to at least have an understanding about us. But, but I also had to remember how how their timeline back then is a lot different from the current generation right now because I do remember from their timeline at the time when American education system that's all they taught them about like how USA is the greatest country on earth and how Columbus you know pretty much made the better country for them and how how USA helped the people of color but really it's not helping them it's actually taking advantage of them to profit off of it and and that's why I said earlier, it's, it's a dilemma for me um, to the point where um, almost like many people I know of, they're influenced by, by the white man's game at the end of the day, where it's even more harder um, for me to, you know, decolonize from the people of color rather than the white supremacy itself. Because, cause, you know, as indigenous people, we will automatically think that, um, that they know better, if that makes sense, but that's not the case for all of them. Because I had to remember, as I said before, is they come from different timelines, different time zones, different backgrounds, different um, approaches to life of how previous generation taught them about the way of living, but also what they know about us, of the, la the lack of um, information about indigenous people here in USA. So it's a huge dilemma as of right now. And I think that's something that we haven't really like, talked about uh, the the dark side of things and that makes sense rather than like the bigger picture of it like if we were to talk about this the minor holes of it and maybe that could close it out to make it even more stronger allies if that makes sense but as of now it's been kind of like um running back and forth and so on and so forth if that makes sense what i'm saying because it, it does sound complicated now i'm not thinking about all this so i completely agree and i think that's something that i've seen here in Australia as well. And it really, I think, hurts as an Indigenous person when you see other minority communities accept and be indoctrinated into the nation state, like the colon the state that's colonised, um, because they've benefited from that. And so rather than, like, communities that you'd expect to have solidarity for Indigenous people, like, other, like in Australia, for example, there are other Indigenous communities who have moved to Australia, like, you know, Indigenous people who have moved to Australia from the Pacific and from New Zealand and like just like a really practical example like not like no shame on the Maori but like I was campaigning for um the referendum that happened back in Australia which was for uh Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament where we would actually then be able to actually give recommendations to our government on the things that affect us and it was like so hard to be handing out the that day where people coming in to vote for this and there were a number of people of color a number of indigenous people like from my community that i live that just went and took the no pamphlet that wouldn't even talk to me um and i'm kind of like are you serious like is your life that good under 
colonialism and in Australia that you can't even acknowledge that you've been indoctrinated into this belief that like I don't like it's like it was like it was incredibly hard and like I'm so I'm not really describing this very well but I think it's something that probably can't ex- like understand the context that it is in the US and how that sort of played out but I think there's similar kind of smaller examples that happen here where you sort of expect some community solidarity and when that's sort of lacking it's just yeah like where do you kind of go from there and you know it does leave you sort of in the lurch as like a small community as well you pretty much hit the nail right there um this whole thing with um the white privilege and how um some people were benefiting from it um it pretty much made things a lot worse for our end pretty much and i know we haven't really got to michael but i'm curious like from his end from michael if there's anything what we said is related to what we were talking about in terms of like um surviving out of like you know try to try to decolonize about us rather than you know letting media um be the reliable source so uh, being in a in a northeastern region of the country um we we do have those types of white privilege um for me i didn't have that i didn't have that type of relationship because i grew up in rhode island and i grew up in north uh, like the northern northeastern part of the uh the country but i did notice that when i moved to florida for three years um i was racially profiled um and it was very odd for me um considering i come from a, a background where my family came from a a lineage where we came over to the US late. We didn't come over, like my grandmother's side of the family. And I, I reiterate a lot of from my grandmother's side of the family because I grew up mostly with her. So um, the heritage from that, my grandmother was born in 1932 and she was, she was born in Sweden. My great great-grandparents were born in Sweden. My great-great, my great-grandmother was born in Sweden. Um, and they all immigrated here in the, the 1900s, went back over to Sweden, and then came back again during uh, World War II. So for me, it was a little bit different growing up because we had more of a, a different heritage line where we were, we were part of uh, an issue where race was a big thing. Um, and I grew up having to learn about how race and being being discriminatory towards people is not an option in the household. So you love everybody equally because no matter what, it's not about the color of our skin, it's what our heart is. So it in a, in a sense for me, I never had that problem. Now, coming from a mixed race household, my my biological father is um, Native American and Puerto Rican, and my mom is Swedish. So it's it's at the time when I was born, interracial marriages and interracial relationships was a huge no-no. It was the worst thing to do. So my mom and my dad, had to deal with all of that. And to see where you guys are coming from right now, I 
I'm not used to that. So I, I feel for you guys because that's just not fair and it's not right. Right now in the world that we live in today, I'm seeing more and more of that type of discriminatory background and demeanor with the newer generations and the newer people and um, trying to take over white white privilege per se, quote unquote, where we're all privileged to be here. We should be loving each other equally. That's how I've always took my take on it. Something that resonates with me with what a lot of you have been expressing in, in, in this last part. And I want to thank each of you for bringing that conversation. And Michael, like you say, you're bringing in this idea of, you know, what your families have experienced over the generations. You know, like, and that's another conversation in and of itself, how indigeneity and different racialized identities have acted over the decades and how people have had to learn to adapt and, and come together and why people might take specific positions. I think this is a wonderful conversation. It's very invigorating to hear like all, all the different facets that go on. I want to ask of each of you here, if there's an element to this conversation around indigeneity and gaining and encouraging and fatness and food, is there an element that we haven't talked on yet that you want to bring up for the listeners? I would like, I come from a different line. So I, I lift and I work out a lot. I, my, my gaining is more on muscle gaining, uh, muscle and fat um, combining, um gaining for um preparation for um shows that are more on my end it's it's always nice to hear and get encouragement from others like burrow and ash that what did they do and how did they um perceive themselves when they're doing their gaining and when they're are they on all the time or do they take breaks and how how they how they live their life like in the gaining community where they are so for me um i'm not necessarily a gainer i'm just an encourager but i'm also a maintainer at the same time although i may be big and tall like don't get me wrong i love food same thing with so many people um but um i just mainly just do sometimes i work out sometimes i do a little bit of walks here and there sometimes i don't really eat but i just eat some snacks some some healthy snacks etc trying to trying to like keep my balance um a healthy life balance if that makes sense though and um in terms of like you know me me being part of the of the the gaining community for me it's a weird paradox for me of where like i kind of expected like you know some welcoming aspects like hey you welcome to the gaining community but then then you got some people in the community where they do um tokenize you of the way you look your skin color your your long hair your tattoos your language your body the way you dance the way you sing etc i think that's for me personally that's one of the huge things what i deal with um in terms of the tokenism in the community not as much back then because because i noticed um more um especially towards the people of color i've been more supportive and more active around when it comes to calling people out on the bullshit of what they see calling out on the bullshit what they've done to them etc so that's why um, between then and now i don't really deal with the tokenism as much because the, the amount of support that i've been receiving uh, throughout the years and etc so so that's my end basically for me yeah i guess that i have a lot so, so sort of add to it because like um 
you know, I'm a gainer, but it sort of ebbs and flows for me based on how busy work is, what's happening in my life and a bunch of other things. I would add like, and this is something I should have, could have mentioned earlier in the podcast as well. Like for people who haven't seen me, I would say I am white passing, like, and there are definitely many, many, many situations where I sort of move through the world as if people would just assume that I'm white. I think that's a de- very different experience as well, like within the gay community, within the gainer community. So even though I am Indigenous and like, you know, lecture in that, work in that space, live that life, and that is me, I am able to go under the radar in what is, I think, in my general belief, like, I think the gay community is very racist, has a lot of hang-ups. It is, you know, in many cases, transphobic, fatphobic, in all these different ways, like when we talk more broadly. And I think in the gaming community, we also see some of those same prejudice sort of playing out. And so that's a space where I guess I don't feel that same level of targeting you know like I'll like occasionally I'll get like a message so you know of someone feeling that they have a right to tell me they should cut my hair or rah 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 but like it's definitely not something they experience in the day-to-day and I think I guess for me I've always sort of also been flowed about like whether I've included stuff in my bios around my indigeneity or how I sort of approach people and talk to people and um you know like most websites like they'll have like native or native american um, but there won't be, like, there'll be other, I guess, is what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander fall under. And, you know, it's always like those kind of weird things as well of like, do I, um, what do I use when there's like those sort of categories as well? So I think there's a lot of those sort of things I haven't, I feel like I'm still sort of working through. I think it's more like once I get to know someone, then I'll have that conversation. But I think that is a particular white passing privilege that I have that that's not just assumed when someone visits my profile immediately and I can choose to, be yeah that i can relate towards the end of it um so i'm starting to like more instagram more but mind you i've been on instagram since the day instagram opened before facebook was open but i've been noticing quite a lot of people from the gaming community join instagram Mm -hmm. to be more community oriented if that makes sense and i noticed um a rare a rare few of us will put native american or indigenous on the profile at least in case there's um, a legitimate indigenous person wanting to form a community within our community, then there it is right there. That's where I start. And from my end, what I would do is, is well, first of all, I'm an artist. Um, I'm an illustrator. And that's what I do in my lifetime. And also I would put, you know, um, I'm Native American. I'm from this tribe, so-and-so. At least they know that I'm legitimate and I'm real. And on top of that, um, discreetly, what I would do is how, if any if any people from our community, the gaming community, wanted to just follow me, just support my artwork, et cetera, I keep it transparent as much as possible that way. At least they know that I'm part of the community, but also I'm also advocating for Native community as best as I can, not just Native community in USA. I'm talking about national throughout Indigenous people as well since technically this month it is um indigenous heritage month so that's a good time to to start advocating one another start start advocating um in terms of their um the cultural heritage um their background etc yeah i i have to agree with you on that i have to agree with both of you because i think a lot of it has to be especially with the um native american indigenous um awareness month it's it's very 
we need to stick together and we need to band together regardless because we have to we got to support each other no matter what it's more of like um how often can we do it i know this is the challenge for all of us because um the work-life balances our personal balances um our social balances, etc but i definitely love the idea of uh, trying to maybe like try to create some kind of a chat community like explicitly um indigenous people only not the not just the usa not just sweden not just australia we're talking about well like i said before national indigenous people across the globe that way at least not only that we're supporting each other um in our gaming community but also we're supporting our actual real indigenous blood within us as well and not, not only that but also relating to one another of different different lifestyles, different strategies, different approaches, et cetera. But, but for the most cases, uh, we tend to relate to it um, because the history, what was taught for us, and also how the, the today's society uh, works for indigenous people nowadays. Yeah, actually, I do agree with you on that. I, I think it's, it's true. It's very, very true. But we, need, we, we have to kind of be more of a community um, for each other, everybody. It doesn't matter what what part of um, either Native American or even Swedish or Norwegian or um, any kind of Scandinavian country, Europe, um, South Asian, doesn't matter where you are, just that, that community in general, we need to be um, cognizant of each other. I love hearing this because I, I wanted to wrap up with a question about like, more specifically from like the gaining community side of things like what can what can people do to create better support for indigeneity within the gaining space but you know but i i think that idea is brilliant you know i'm, I'm not sure how that's going to happen indigenous people here on the call people listening talk to one another about community and creating things where it's all for y'all and that's kind of support network you know but you mentioned you're an artist you do commissions and also you bitch have done some fucking gallery shit and ash you have also done installations before uh through some of your university work like there is some real potent stuff and michael you know i know that you've done uh like powerlifting and you've done competitions and stuff like there is some representation of power and strength here on the call today so I just want to ask genuinely is there anything from like the average listener who probably isn't indigenous as far as gaining goes as far as community support all of that goes what is the number one takeaway you would want people to have from today's conversation well from from my my takeaway i just want them to know that we still exist today we still exist out there. We may not look like what people portray us back then, but but this generation and this timeline is different. Learn to adapt from it. Take time to research about us and hell, just ask us like what tribe we're from. And we may be more than happy to talk about the tip of the iceberg about ourselves rather than just making up lies of about us, etc. So and lastly, what I will say, though, is if you know any Indigenous friends, like whether it whether it's in the gaining community, whether it's in the, um, the non-gaining community, I just want you all to support your Native friends as much as possible because there's not many Native people nowadays um, in Native spaces because the whole average of 0.1% nowadays. So support, support your Indigenous friends as much as possible because they're going to need it throughout the timelines.
Yeah, my what I would say is learn whose land you're on, um, which is like something like it's a more radical kind of approach, which is kind of going like if you know you live in a colonized land, do the research, find out who like who are the mob who live there, and you'll probably be surprised with actually the fact that those mob are still there. Like they will have community organizations. Or if they're not there, what is that history? Make yourself aware of those histories or where you live. Um, I think, like, you know, in the case of Australia, like, Aboriginal people are everywhere. Like, there's community organisation, there's events, there's ways that you can kind of, you know, be a part of that and sort of join in when there's, like, those public celebrations and connect and sort of understand, like, what's going on in those communities and what their struggles are and how you can support them, like, whether they choose of healthcare, of land rights, of other sort of things. Um, and, you know, people always say these, but I think like a, even just a starting point, I know this isn't the most accurate map. There is a thing called native-land.ca um, and that's a website where they've actually roughly mapped Indigenous language groups and um, uh, <clears throat> lands like across the globe. And it's actually a really good starting point where you can just check that map and then find those names and look up you know our communities and see if there's ways that you can connect or at least be aware of who land you're living on yeah yeah i think it's a it's it's good for us to to be aware and and to give each other that that understanding because of what what is going on in this world we need to we need to be there I want to give a big thanks to each and every one of you for being here today to have this conversation and I know that this is a, a first to have such a, a collective of Indigenous voices to speak about these experiences and thoughts and what's going on concurrently, um, especially like as far as Ganey is concerned, but again, I want to thank you all for giving up that time and space and encourage our listeners, if you know anyone who is Indigenous within the community or even Indigenous outside of that, Give them that love and support. And as far as Ganey is concerned, take away some notes from today. Think about ways that you can lift them up, grant them a bit more support, take the time to listen to them for what they need. And thank you again, just all three of you for being here, Indigenous people who are listening, and to everyone for being a part of today. So where can our listeners find y'all online? Um, my Instagram is Party Chubby Bears. Um, I can't remember if it's private or open. Um, Follow me there. You can find me at my artist and main account at littleberto17. And you can find me on um, Instagram and probably about every single platform you can think of, um, OzBearLover09. Well, listen, that's it for another week here on Thick Radio. Please remember to like and subscribe, rate us five stars, and leave us a good review. Now, listen, if you liked this episode, the podcast, or just us in general, please share it with your friends and encourage them to tune in. You can find me on Instagram and Blue Sky at Stanham. And you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok at Thicky Mouse. You can also look us up on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Thick Radio, or on our website at podpage.com forward slash Thick Radio. If you want to submit a voice note or become a financial supporter of the show, you can find the links in the show notes, and you can also write to us at thethickradio at gmail.com. So until next time, bye fats. Bye fats. Bye fats. Let's talk about it. Thick Radio is a Patreon and Enter app podcast.
produced by Saturn and Nicky Nuts. Next time, Masterclass Down. Our artwork is provided by Lokitu. Our theme song is provided by Spotify Curtain.